More than 5 million people nationwide make a living by driving. I can find a job, but the, 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 the money or salary is not going to be the same. Driving with Uber is like the best thing. I mean, I'm averaging over $10 an hour, and I can make my schedule. I can, I can go driving whenever I want. But some self-driving car companies are predicting their technology will be on the open roads in mass as early as 2020. Oh, a robot car? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea about that. That's an iffy one. That's an iffy one. Because it's, it's not just the cars. It's like really all jobs. That means that millions of people could be out of work in less than three years. It's kind of scary. It's like, well, I thought we were supposed to be like creating jobs for people. And they have no responsibility to provide people's job. This led Chip and I to want to ask a very simple question. What will all these drivers do next? This is work in progress. Keeping an American business alive. It's just not as easy anymore. I watch too much go wrong. There are not a lot of choices. I don't think it's just a question of job elimination. Some jobs will become actually safer to do. It certainly is a different America. There's opportunities here that yes. are untapped. You have to go get them. I'm just hoping that something will eventually crop up and get my life started. Welcome to LinkedIn's Work in Progress, a podcast on the future of the world of work. I'm your host, Caroline Fairchild, covering tech and startups for LinkedIn. And I'm LinkedIn Managing Editor Chip Cutter. I'm spending this year on the road, going across the country to talk to workers about really what it means to earn a living now. And this week, Chip and I are both getting out of the comforts of our offices to spend most of our time in Ubers, Lyfts, and taxis talking to drivers about what exactly they would do if tomorrow the roads were run by self-driving cars. When Caroline and I started talking about how we wanted to tackle this issue, we knew we wanted to really speak to the people at the front lines, the drivers themselves. Driving is one of those professions where you can do it across the country, you can do it at all different points of your career, it can be a sort of buffer job in between other full-time gigs. With all of these factors in play, we wanted to know, are drivers worried about what the future might look like? Do they talk about automation and self-driving cars with their friends and family? Are they concerned about what the future of this career might look like? So to do this, we didn't want to go talk to the CEOs of Uber and Lyft. We wanted to go talk to the drivers to see what they're saying. I spent a day out in San Francisco going from Uber to Lyft to taxi, talking to drivers and getting their thoughts. And then I traveled to New York City, where Chip and I did the same thing, just all around the mean streets of New York. Carolyn, we had a blast together. It was a rainy Monday afternoon, and we were going in and out of Ubers, talking to these really interesting groups of drivers. I also went to Charlotte, North Carolina. There, I got the perspective of drivers who oftentimes do this on the side. They drive on weekends or after work. We also spoke with Padma Warrior, the CEO of NEO, an autonomous driving startup based out of Palo Alto. She's one of the leaders driving this tech to market, so we wanted to get a sense from what she made of all of this. But it honestly didn't matter where we were talking to drivers. The stories were the same. The thinking on the topic was largely the same. Yes, drivers have heard about self-driving or autonomous cars, or as some call them, robot cars. But most think that this is something that's going to happen 10, 15 years down the road, and they haven't given much thought to what they're going to do between now and then. During one of my first rides in San Francisco, I spoke with a 30-year-old Uber and Lyft driver named Ricky. He's been driving for the two startups for a little over two years, and before that, he was selling kitchen and bathroom appliances at Home Depot. When I asked him why he started working for Uber and Lyft, he had a pretty straightforward answer. 
if it's the only way I can make $1,000 in a week, no other company in the world is going to offer me that. Ricky went on to tell me that he works between 50 to 55 hours a week for Uber and Lyft, and the money doesn't even compare to what he was getting paid at Home Depot. He even has convinced several of his friends to switch to driving just based on the income he is pulling in alone. Do you have any friends who drive for Uber or Lyft? A lot of friends, yeah. Yeah? I was the first one of them to start driving, and then I told them, hey, start driving, and they started driving. They gave up their job because they're making more here. And what were some of them doing before? Some of them were working at McDonald's, College Junior, and some of them were struggling with the school fees and stuff. And But Uber is like one of the best companies to work for so far, Uber and Lyft. I would, I, I would suggest every parent, if you think your, your kid is not that bright, he's not going to make it up in school, don't take a $15,000 loan on his student loan just for the sake of going to school. Rather buy him a $5,000 car and put him on at work. He'll, he'll learn a lot of things on the street. And Ricky wasn't the only driver we spoke with who said they felt that Uber and Lyft really were the best options for them in this economy. I also talked to Partha. He's a 27-year-old former Lapan Quotidian worker who started driving for Uber when he went to school for accounting. I can find the job, but the, 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 the money or salary is not going to be the same, right? And I have to do, like, more than one job because the most of the restaurant, they hire only for 30 hours, 25 hours, not full-time right now because I work in a restaurant, so... Um, one of my friends, he's still working there, and he told me that all employee there, they're working like 25 hours, 30 hours only a week. And they, they make less money, less money than before. So for a lot of the drivers, it's about the money. There aren't too many careers out there where you can make a six-figure income, even if you don't necessarily have a formal education. But flexibility is also another big part of this. I spoke with Dewan. He's a 46-year-old, originally from Bangladesh, who drives up to 60 hours a week. He says that he likes that he can work that much, but also do it around everything else going on in his life. When I work in uh, Yellow Cab, I have to choose only one shift, or day or night. And you have to whole day work, 10 hours, 12 hours. is very, very tough. That job, no independence. If you go somewhere else, you can go. You can't because you have to take permission of your manager. Or sometimes you like, oh, that time you see your store is busy or something like this, you cannot go over there. But whatever busy, sometimes I go bank, I go bank, or I have a personal work, I can do this. If you join any company or anywhere, you have no independence. After speaking with Dewan, we stumbled across someone who just started driving for Uber, but his story sounded similar. Meg Oily is a 23-year-old from Nepal who has been driving for only a month. He had just quit his former job where he worked at a 7-Eleven and a wine store, and he said he made $4,000 in his first month. That's $1,500 more than he was making at his previous jobs. But the money wasn't the only draw. And why did you decide to start to work for Uber? Uh, because uh, there is a uh, own time, own schedule. That's why I love this one. Whatever I win over, I like the that time I I should work. When we working on the uh, like uh, other store, like a Seven Eleven store, anything else, we were under the somebody. They were ordering, giving us do that, do that. When they don't like that, they giving the more pressures. Like my boss don't like me, or my manager don't like me. Uh, that times my manager give me the more pressure, but Uber nobody give us the pressure. In the driving nobody give us the pressure. 
No pressure. No pressure. So he's making more money with better hours. You can see the appeal there. But even for people in in in-demand professions, like a 63-year-old programmer we met in New York City, he told us that he found driving to be more attractive than picking up an extra job in his own field. He was driving for Uber to help get his two kids through college and to retire sooner. The thing I love about this is uh, totally flexible. I can take any day off, any any hour off. I can go right after this to do to home. I decide not to work uh, tomorrow. That flexibility part, I, I could have taken or I could have looked for another, for instance, contract job in my own profession. But now I have to be dealing with the timing and, you know, there are times that I have to stay long for overtime for my own job. So I can easily pass this. It's no big deal. So that kind of flexibility is is important to me. So after speaking to dozens of drivers, we realized that they really like this job. They like the autonomy that it gives them. They like the money that they can earn. And these are both things that they didn't have at previous points in their career. So given that there are so many people who are choosing this as a profession, full-time, if not part-time, Chip and I began to question, what would they do if this job wasn't around? If driving ceased to exist as a way for them to make money, what would they do next? And here, too, there was a sense of optimism. Let's go back to our 63-year-old programmer who summed up his career prospects like this. You always find out something else. This was available to me, so I took it. It's as simple as that. If it wasn't available, I don't know. So this job was available and he took it. There wasn't any fear that, oh, maybe jobs like this wouldn't be out there if automation took on a bigger role in the economy. He was doing this now. So there was this acceptance that no matter what, he'd land on his feet and he'd find something better. But what interested me, too, is the extent that drivers actually felt that companies like Uber, like Lyft, are responsible for keeping them employed. Some, like a driver who asked me to call him Michelle because he was going through some immigration issues and didn't want to use his full name, told me that he'd been driving for six months and he felt like it wasn't Uber or anyone else's responsibility to give him a job. When it's come to technology, people don't have to oppose it. We just have to welcome it and see how to adjust. It's like Uber came and the taxi business is dying. Um, people try to complain, but I think that's the wrong way, the wrong approach, you know. When it's come to also driverless cars, I think we we'll just need to adjust to it. But um, it is something that I welcome. We're living in a world where nothing is guaranteed, um, technology advanced, and I'm pretty sure Uber will have some positions Um, because uh, they will need the human touch in one way or another. And those people who are doing it and they know it's going to come, they have to adjust. If they educate it or they need to go learn some other skills or they, you know, do business or they do something else, they have to get ready for it. And Michelle has a graduate degree, and he told me that he has many other skills. If automation somehow makes drivers obsolete, he could turn his talents elsewhere. And talking with some of these drivers, though, they said that they really felt that Uber and Lyft and these other companies had been built on the backs of humans, that if there wasn't a person behind the wheel, they just felt that there would be a revolution, a real revolt among drivers and customers. Here's Fred Banks. He's a 46-year-old who works as a personal trainer in Charlotte and drives up to 40 hours a week for Uber. The same Uber drivers, most of them use Uber themselves when they don't want to drive. So, I mean, you might look at the fact that, well, we don't have to pay these drivers, but a lot of those drivers won't use the system, I'll say. And 
could be influential in having talking to other people and, with, and, and saying, no, we're not going to do that because why am I going to keep supporting a company or a business that basically took away my livelihood? So what responsibility do tech leaders need to play in helping people find their next job and figuring out what role humans do play in an economy that might increasingly be operated by machines? For that, I wanted to sit down with Padma Warrior, the CEO of NEO. It's not a ride-sharing company, to be clear, but it's one of the companies that's developing technology for private autonomous vehicles. I needed to understand what they're working on and what Padma thought about all of this. Padma, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Work in Progress. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. For those of us who are listening who don't know what NEO is, give us a little background on the company and what you're doing here. We are working on self-driving cars, but more importantly, we are thinking about how when the car of the future becomes your living space, how would it become a space for you to work, for you to be uh, peaceful and for you to discover new things. And thinking about self-driving cars and your car almost becoming your living room, like you said, it's still a really out-of-reach concept for most people, yet Neo plans on getting self-driving cars to market by 2020, which is just around the corner. How are we really there with this technology right now? Unpack that a little bit. Yeah, so I think it's going to be an evolution. If you look at cars today, right, you know, it's going to change fundamentally from just me being a mode of conveyance to a a personal space. And, you know, if you look at your smartphone, um, you know, today most of us can't live without that device. It didn't start out that way. I was actually from that industry. I was at Motorola before uh, Cisco. Uh, Many companies back then thought that, that the cell phone would just become a communication device. Instead, it really has become a personal personalization device with the smartphone. The car will go through a similar transition where it is not just a mode of conveyance taking you from point A to point B anymore. Many people today still leave, you know, you leave your things in your car. You put your car seat in your car for your children. You don't want to be taking, in and taking it back in, out and, and putting back in. It's sort of like an extension of your space. And, you know, we want to design it that way. So yeah, I think the full autonomous vehicles where you're not with as a car without a steering, without pedals is probably still way out in the future, like you say. Uh, we think of it as more as an evolution uh, versus a fundamental revolution in terms of how human beings will adjust to that. So we are targeting what is known in the industry as level four autonomy, meaning it's highly automated. Um, the car will be, is the car of the future, will be able to drive itself and allow you to get your time back. Our vision as a company, you know, we say our vision is to create uh, something where we give people their time back. That's the vision. We don't say anything about cars. We don't say anything about sensors. We don't say anything about radars. Really focused on human beings. Today, people waste so much time commuting. And how do we give you your time back? That's what we are focused on. So Padma, we're talking about millions of people here who work as drivers or in related fields. And if automation really does come about, it could significantly change their jobs or make them obsolete. So I talked to some people that are kind of in that industry right now. One is Shane Willicke. He's a cab driver in Madison, Wisconsin. And I asked him whether he was worried about automation taking his job. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think uh, all drivers, uh, in one way or another, kind of assume that that's going to happen eventually. Um, None of us really think uh, or thought that it was going to happen this quickly. What would you say to those Americans, people like Shane, who are thinking now about their jobs 
potentially becoming obsolete. What should they be thinking about and how should they consider reskilling or possibly retraining as a result of this new technology? Automation and artificial intelligence are two big trends that are going to affect all our lives. And so I think this is a topic that we're all looking at. I think there will be certain jobs that will change. You know, I don't think it's just a question of job elimination. Some jobs will become actually safer to do. I think because the technology will augment you. you. If you deploy drones, for instance, people that are working in mining and other areas where there's a lot of safety issues today where technology can be much more helpful. It will actually save human beings from putting themselves in in stressful situations or unsafe situations where machines could be much more effective at doing that. In in a particular example of cab drivers, uh, yeah, those jobs will probably change. So perhaps instead of being a car mechanic today who works on an engine, in the future you will be a sensor mechanic replacing sensors and cameras, you still need people to do those kind of things. I think to me, the good news is hardware innovation is actually coming back to the United States. If we if we do focus on the right kind of incentives for this, right? These are not just apps on a mobile device. Just, this is not just software. There's a lot of hardware innovation that is necessary. And so it's a new kind of factory and a new kind of innovation, new kind of mechanical engineering, you know, those kind of new connect mechanics that know how to fix these things. Uh, So yes, it will change, but you know, it's hard to predict how exactly what jobs will be there, but we do have to retool our workforce. Absolutely. And what you're talking about is something that we hear from tech leaders a lot like Mark Andreessen, who have largely shrugged off what can be interpreted as hysteria about the robots coming in and taking over all of these jobs. Do you agree that this is overblown? Are you confident that the jobs will shift in a way that it's not going to be like a lot of people are left behind? I think, you know, so I'm not I'm not complacent or arrogant enough to say it won't affect jobs. It will. I think it's affecting our jobs. You know, it's affecting my job. So I definitely have empathy and I definitely acknowledge that there will be a shift and there will be a transition necessary. I don't think the answer is let's go back to the past. I do not agree with that. You know, I think that approach, I don't, I think it'll set us way back. You know, if you look at it, it's a competitive global platform nowadays. What I do believe in, yes, it'll impact jobs. The jobs will shift. We do need to acknowledge that and we need to make the right kind of investments to retool our country and our workforce. Padma, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you. And Padma went on to say that it's critical for the private and public sectors to work together in this effort to get drivers and employees now in the auto industry ready for what is next. At NEO, for example, they have a pretty elaborate internship program where they're trying to get current students the right skills they will need to be successful at the car companies of the future. But obviously, that kind of effort only scales so much. Right. And while the drivers don't necessarily talk about how their roles might change, we know the companies are starting to think about this. Recently, Lyft's director of product made the somewhat unusual announcement that humans will always have a place in Lyft's cars. Lyft is actually starting an advisory council that will help to figure out how humans should transition into this self-driving world. And what's funny is that even before that announcement came from Lyft, I spoke with an Uber driver in San Francisco. His name was Steven, and he practically predicted this. His take was that if one service stops using drivers entirely, maybe another will use it as their competitive advantage, having humans still a part of the experience. And then there's always like Lyft and the competition. Maybe they don't want, they might take the opposing stance of 
we're for the people. We're going to leave the drivers in the cars. <laughs> and it might, like, backfire on or whoever decides to do that, especially when someone, like, dies in an accident, which is <laughs> undoubtedly. Because there's going to be, like, people driving still. And then, like, what happens if someone crashes into the car and they're like, well, someone was in the other car. They could have maybe moved. But Caroline, even if the ride-sharing services automate even a portion of these jobs, that's still a very large group of people who will be impacted. So what do these people expect to do next if these jobs do go away, or if they're vastly different? Here are just a few of the responses we heard to this question, starting with Stephen, the driver from San Francisco. Uh, in 10 years, I'll be maybe opening up like my second restaurant, hopefully. I will run my own design consultation. I'll be having my own business. I'm into IT. You yeah. may feel that. Um, I'll be having my own business. So you can hear these drivers seem to have it figured out. They have a plan of what else they would do if these jobs did not exist. But I also talked to people who were a little more skeptical. Allison McDonough is a 22-year-old recent business graduate who has a full-time job in human resources. And for people like her with a full-time job, but just looking for some extra income, she says she really doesn't know what she would do. I just have weekends and maybe after work to do it. So I would have to find something else that, you know, with no experience, let me do that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the only other thing I would be interested in doing is like maybe part-time like swim lessons or some type of fitness instructor on the side. But even that is a lot less flexible. Like you have to be there at certain times. And this is really like I can just hop in the car and drive whenever I want, so, which is great. And while the drivers won't necessarily use words like a skills gap, they will talk about how they worry about automation and worry about just how much time it would take to get up to speed to do these new jobs of the future. With a lot of the, the way things are changing, Sometimes it might change too fast. You might not have people trained to, to do whatever it is. And uh, that's going to take some time. And with that taking time to get people trained the right way, you know, you never know what could happen. And what Fred says there about it taking a lot of time and not being sure about how he's actually going to get there is really my concluding thought after all of our reporting. I can't help but feel like we're creating this whole class of the economy that is using driving as a way to strive to another income class. And when that goes away, what's going to happen next? We have some companies like Lyft saying that they're going to do things to support drivers, but I can't help but feel like we're not doing enough right now. And if we don't do something quick, the current skills gap that we have in the economy is just going to get bigger. That's it. There's this trust that no matter what, I'll find another job and I'll land on my feet. But what I don't think we've considered is what happens if the usual fallback jobs, the retail jobs, the food service jobs, what if those also cease to exist? That's the scariest part in this. If we don't figure out within a relatively short period of time how to get workers prepared for this future, we're going to have a lot more jobs that people can't do and a lot more workers unemployed across the country. Thank you for listening. If you like or are curious about what you're hearing, please feel free to rate and review our show on iTunes and Google Play. It really helps. And we'd love for you to share your thoughts on the podcast and the issues we've discussed here today on LinkedIn using hashtag work in progress. You can find me on LinkedIn at Caroline Fairchild and at Twitter at CFair1. And to follow Chip Cutter and his travels, follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter as well at Chip Cutter. This week's show is produced by Florencia Iriando, David Pond, and Wesley Wingo. We'll see you again soon.